Good evening, everyone. I am so delighted to see that there are so many people who are not watching the football this evening. <laughs> so congratulations for having your priorities right. Um, welcome. My name is Minu Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics, uh, and not a huge football fan, so I'm, I'm definitely in the right place. Um, delighted this evening to welcome Gilles Kepel, who is Professor of Political Science at École Normale Supérieure in Paris. He is one of the world's leading experts on political Islam and fundamentalism. He has written many, many books. Uh, he has very strong links to our sister organization in Paris, Sciences Po, and most importantly for us, he was one of our favorite uh, Philippe Romain chair holders uh, when he spent a year here at the London School of Economics in 2010. I could uh, list many of his recent books. I won't do list all of them, but he, I'll, I'll mention a few. Beyond Terror and Martyrdom, The Future of the Middle East, The War for Muslim Minds, Islam and the West, and Jihad, the trial of political Islam, to name a few. Gilles has written many, many other things. He's been a frequent commentator on the politics of the region. And as always in the Middle East, the sands are shifting yet again. And this evening, he's going to be speaking to us about the Middle East after ISIS, what is at stake. So welcome to Gilles Kepel. He'll speak for 30, 40 minutes, and then we'll open the floor to discussion and conversations and questions from the audience. So join me in welcoming Gilles Kepel this evening. Well, thank you very much, Dame Minouche, for this very kind introduction. I'll have to live up to it now, which is a great challenge. Uh, the other challenge, apart from uh, football, is that uh, on the 18th of June, 1940, General de Gaulle made his famous call out of London, and so for a Frenchman to give a talk in London on the 18th of June is always uh, something slightly intimidating, but fortunately no one remembers in Britain, so uh, that's a uh, consolation. Um, the other thing is, from what I hear, uh, Britain is, it's, is it England or Britain in soccer? Uh, England. England, England. Sorry. England. I mean, <laughs> I'm not, I've been told by Nick uh, here not to, Nick, not to, talk, to touch Brexit tonight, so I won't. Uh, is England is, uh, is uh, playing against Tunisia, so I've been also told not to talk about Tunisia too much tonight, not to... Uh, arise the sensibilities of the, of the public. Um, the, uh, it, it's, it's a great pleasure for me to be back here. Uh, I always, whenever I come to London, I always uh, remember how much I, I loved this, uh, this year that I spent at LSE Ideas and uh, with uh, everybody here, uh, with uh, Mick, with uh, Emilia Knight and, and, and others. It was a, it was a great uh, challenge and uh, I loved it a lot. And um, so I'm particularly pleased to discuss with you tonight the, what is going to be my next book coming out in, uh, in, in the fall about uh, the fate of the Middle East today uh, after um, what we had uh, thought would be a wave of democratization in the region, what was called the Arab Springs. 
that uh, started, uh, well, a little after I was at the LSE in, uh, well, of course, it was related, uh, in the spring of 2011, and uh, which led to a number of uh, unfortunate uh, conclusions, one of them being the creation of the proclamation of the so-called Islamic Caliphate of ISIS, or Daesh, as they say in Arabic and as we say in French, in uh, June 2014, which lasted for three years until uh, it was finally uh, destroyed militarily, but not necessarily destroyed politically, this uh, last fall in uh, Mosul first and then in, uh, in Raqqa. And, uh, now, uh, what is at stake in the Middle East after the, uh, the, uh, the end of the, of the territorial end, as, uh, at least of, of the, um, the so-called caliphate, is, of course, uh, a, big, a big question for us because the, um, uh, particularly the, the Levant area, uh, that is Syria, Lebanon, Iraq mainly, Jordan to an extent, are still in, uh, in a, uh, a level of, of havoc or of turmoil which is, uh, which is extremely uh, worrisome. And um, not everything is on the table, to, to, say, to say the least. So how, how can we envisage the, the future of the region? It's not only an issue of... Uh, of foreign policy, as, uh, as you know, because uh, the Mediterranean, which uh, we use to consider as a sort of a safe border and as a place for vacations, uh, has changed its identities and its identity, particularly over the, the last decade and since the beginning of the, uh, of the Arab upheavals. Uh, millions of uh, people have crossed the river from the south and the east to the north, uh, refugees from Syria, from uh, Iraq, from Afghanistan, which, as you know, were uh, finally welcomed by uh, Mrs. Merkel in, in Germany, who uh, sought to um, integrate this new population in a sort of uh, uh, de demographically declining Germany, and uh, she uh, hoped that uh, this was something that would give new blood to the country, and uh, with her famous Wirtschaften das um, call, which, as you know, uh, brought, as of now, a lot of anxiety in the, in the German electorate, which uh, elected uh, the extreme right party Alternative für Deutschland, in the last general elections, which has led to the fact that uh, her, her government is uh, in a state of terrible weakness, that you may have seen that the, uh, uh, over the la last week the director of immigration was sacked, that uh, the uh, social, uh, Christian, uh, social Christian Union of Bavaria is uh, looking more and more to hung hung Hungarian and Austrian policy vis-à-vis -vis the migrants, and so on and so forth. Similarly, in, in Italy, uh, just a few, uh, a few months ago, uh, the general elections brought another uh, government uh, uh, to Palazzo Chigi, which uh, has a very strong uh, extreme right constituent based also on an anti-immigrant policy. And oh, uh, only last week, the, uh, the trials of this uh, 
immigrants built, the Aquarius, reminding of the Exodus to some extent in the, in the rhyme, um, that was not allowed to go to, um, to Italy, uh, which the French did not really want to land in France, and which finally ended in Spain, much to the dismay of European authorities and public opinion, reminded us that this was an issue which is now a big stake. So the, uh, the, the, northern the, no the North African uh, coast and the, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean coast uh, are, uh, are now, in a way, part and parcel of not only of our frontier, but also of our inner policy. And uh, the, the, the future of, uh, of, uh, of Europe and uh, of the European elections uh, due to take place in 2019 uh, with our Britain for the time being, but who knows, uh, uh, is uh, largely linked to uh, whatever happens in the, in the region. And uh, for, the, for the time being also, the, uh, the extreme right and the populist uh, European parties the ones who are, who, that are looking forward to the, the breakaway of, uh, of Europe are definitely benefiting from not only this uh, mayhem in the region, but also uh, from the fact that uh, Europe has not been able to, to build a common policy uh, towards this, uh, this uh, burning issue. And when I say Europe, I do not mean only the European Union, but the, the, whole, the whole continent in general including the, the British Isles. This was one of the, of the uh, flows of, of people around the Mediterranean, uh, that is the north-south and the east-west uh, flow, but there was another one that uh, was running simultaneously, even though it was less numerous, that raised a number of questions in the, in the region. That is, the thousands of young people from uh, London, from Manchester, from uh, Paris, from Argenteuil, from, from Brussels, from Berlin, Madrid, and whatever and wherever, who would go as jihadists uh, to Syria uh, and Iraq to join the ranks of uh, the jihadi organizations, the Jihad al-Nusra, or the Islamic State, also known as ISIS or, or Daesh. And uh, which uh, something which raises also an, an, a, a very big political question and a question of uh, of uh, our uh, social policies, our capacity uh, towards cultural uh, integration. How come uh, children of immigrants uh, who we would have thought would benefit from uh, staying in Europe, who would enjoy uh, European civilization, welfare, uh, uh, and so on and so forth, how come they would turn culturally and politically against their countries of, um, of residence? and uh, go, to, uh, go to the Middle East, join radical Islamist organization, terrorist movements, and even come back and turn against their fellow citizens, as happened in France with the Charlie Hebdo and the, particularly the Bataclan uh, attacks on the 13th of November uh, 2015. That happened in, also in Brussels, in Berlin, and uh, other, uh, other places. So... 
And this, as you know, was not limited only to children of immigrants, uh, even though they were, of course, a tiny minority, but nevertheless, this was something that struck uh, people and that also uh, uh, gave uh, a lot of, uh, of ideas to uh, people who wanted to vote for the extreme right. But this also uh, took place among rising number of converts, uh, people who were from uh, British, French, German, Italian, or Spanish, or what have you, European stock, who would be attracted by this uh, radical alternative and who would uh, convert to this uh, kind of uh, religi religiosity uh, would uh, then travel and uh, eventually come back and uh, attack their uh, fellow uh, compatriots. So this whole uh, disruption in the, uh, in the political system of the, of the region uh, was dealt with uh, primarily uh, by military means. Uh, after the terrorist threat had reached the level it had reached, particularly in 2015, which was definitely the, the watershed uh, year for terrorism in Europe, linked to Middle Eastern and North African issues, then you had a concerted action from uh, the major Western powers in order to strike at the Islamic State. At the time, uh, the so-called Islamic State controlled uh, territory uh, from the Nineveh Plain in Iraq, uh, south and east of uh, the city of Mosul, to uh, the uh, Orontes River in, uh, in Syria and down to, uh, from Aleppo and the Turkish border in the north to uh, Palmyra in the, in the south and even with some uh, uh, outposts close to the uh, Israeli border on the, on the Golan. That uh, included something like uh, three million inhabitants and uh, covered a span of more uh, than uh, seven to 800 kilometers in width, even though most of it was desert. Nevertheless, uh, this was not a statelet, and this was, uh, this was a very significant uh, amount of land, and uh, more so it covered mainly uh, the Sunni heartland that uh, considered that Sunnis should uh, be uh, returned to a position of hegemony and of control on the whole uh, Levant region. And uh, they definitely considered that um, they had been uh, stripped from uh, what w should have been uh, their capacity to rule the region, that Iraq was now under the control of uh, Shias and that those Shias were uh, closely linked to their neighbor Iran, that Lebanon had only uh, escaped Christian dominance uh, after the Taif agreements in 1989 to uh, come under Shia and Hezbollah hegemony 
in that Syria was controlled by uh, the Alawi sects to which President uh, Bashar al-Assad belongs and therefore that Sunnis uh, had to be returned to positions of leadership in the region. This led to a major change also in the whole region uh, and when we look back to uh, the 1970s, for instance, and we compare that period with what we're living today in the Middle East, uh, the fault lines definitely have moved. In the 1970s, uh, the major divide was the Arab-Israeli or the Arab-Palestinian divide. Either you were pro-Arab and pro-Palestinian or you were pro-Israeli. And uh, nowadays, things have changed tremendously. When you think of the fault line in the Middle East, the issue is not so much whether you're pro or anti-Palestinian, but whether you're pro-Shia or whether you're pro-Sunni. And... Uh, I uh, always uh, remember a, a visit I made to, uh, to the uh, Israeli uh, annexed Golan territory uh, in 2016, a couple of years ago in June. And um, the, uh, the Israelis would uh, show their guests uh, the border with, uh, with Syria. This border uh, had been rather still quiet since uh, the war of uh, 1973, the October War of 1973. But then, since the Arab upheavals, the border on the Syrian side of it had changed, had undergone a number of changes. On the northern part, this is a 40-something, 40 46-kilometer border. On the northern parts, you had the Syrian army, the loyalist Syrian army, loyal to Bashar al-Assad, and Hezbollah that controlled something like 20 kilometers of the northern part of the border. In the center part, you had the Al-Qaeda-linked group Jabhat al-Nusra for something like 10 kilometers, and then the last 10 kilometers on the further southern part were controlled by ISIS. And the three were in fighting all the time. The Israelis would open the border at night to let the Al-Qaeda wounded come and be treated in Israeli hospitals. And of course, you know, after treatment, you could have a chat and uh, discuss the, the others. Uh, also, what was very striking was that both uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda tried to cling to the Israeli border as much as they could. Not that they wanted to attack Israel because they knew that retaliation would be tremendous, but they thought that the closest they were to the Israeli border, the less risky it would be for them because the uh, Syrian loyalist air force would not dare go and bomb them because they would be downed by the Israeli air defense. So this led to what people facetiously call uh, um, uh, jihadi Zionist alliance, if you want, <laughs> against, uh, against the forces of, uh, of Bashar al-Assad and of, of Iran and Syria. So 
this uh, sort of minor example um, was in a way uh, illustrative of uh, how uh, the stakes had, uh, had turned. For many in the West, the big issue when uh, the upheavals, the Arab upheavals started in uh, 2011 was to boost democracy in the Middle East. At the time, common wisdom was that, you know, as we were still living in a sort of post-Francis Fukuyama uh, doctrine, i.e., um, thinking that the, we, have, we had reached the end of history, that uh, liberal democracy, uh, the American way, was going to win everywhere. Well, this had been demonstrated in Europe because, you know, uh, uh, sort of southern fascist uh, authoritarian regimes of Spain, Portugal, and Greece had fallen, and then uh, the so-called... Uh, socialist countries of Central and Eastern Europe also had fallen. Everybody was becoming democratic and was following the same path. Now, it was the turn of the Arabs. And uh, those uh, revolutions 2.0 were going to bring the Arab world uh, to, uh, the fold of, uh, to the fold of democracy, uh, Western style. And then we could escape the sort of fake alternative of dictatorship or Islamism. And the reason why there was no choice between those two was that there was no democracy. Now, with a democratic choice, you could have something in the middle, which was neither military authoritarianism nor uh, jihadi or uh, Islamist rule. Unfortunately, um, this did not really uh, proceed as had been uh, envisaged uh, for a number of reasons. One of them was that uh, pundits and uh, many observers were so um, enthralled, uh, enthused with the, uh, with the advent of those revolutions and with the fact that we saw all those young people on Tahrir Square in Egypt, in Cairo, and Bourguiba Avenue in Tunis. Oops, I said I would not discuss Tunisia. And, uh, or uh, in Bahrain and uh, in Manama, uh, chanting, Shaab yurid iskat al-Nizam, the people want the downfall of the regime. That uh, we tended to follow, to, to forget, sorry, that, uh, that the Middle East and North Africa had a, had a history, history of its own and that it was not just mimicking what was happening on the global sphere. And um, after a few months, when in some of the countries of the region, out of the six countries that underwent upheavals, at least in three of them, in Tunisia, in uh, Egypt, and in Libya, the uh, authoritarian rulers were ousted and then a new regime painstakingly took shape. Nevertheless, in the three other countries where upheavals took uh, place, i.e. Bahrain, Yemen, and Syria, 
the sectarian fragmentation of the country did not allow for the uh, downfall of the regime. On the contrary, it led either to a, a police operation in Bahrain that aborted the revolution uh, or to a civil war as we see in Yemen and in Syria based mainly on sectarian fault lines, something into which the regional major powers and then the uh, superpowers intervened. Now, when we want to uh, try to find out what is at stake now, we have to keep that in mind, that not all of the Arab upheavals uh, were alike. In the first three countries, in uh, Tunisia, in uh, Egypt, and in Libya, which are mainly Sunni, even though there are some uh, Ibadi Berbers in Tunisia and Libya, and there, are, there is a significant Christian Coptic minority in Egypt. Nevertheless, they do not have a political role, the, uh, and they do not have uh, the capacity to influence national politics. After a while, uh, the, uh, the young, uh, educated uh, middle class that took to the streets, that uh, we believed uh, in the West was to become the organic intellectuals of the, of the upheavals, because actually they looked like us. They, many of them spoke, li spoke like us. They, they knew French, they knew English. They knew, and the first slogan of the, uh, of the Arab Revolution was actually the French slang spoken in Tunisia. They, they told Ben Ali to go and they howled dégage at him, dégage being the way uh, they pronounce dégage, which means get out, leave in French. Uh, in Egypt, they said, Arhal, leave, get out. The, uh, in spite of that, those young people were unable to build deep enough roots with uh, the, uh, the most uh, widespread layers of civil society in this country. And the groups that were able to uh, hijack the upheavals, even though they had taken no part really in um, organizing the original movement, were the Muslim Brothers. The Muslim Brothers, uh, which are, as you know, uh, a movement that was created in 1928 in Egypt by a former school teacher called Hassan al-Banna had uh, as their um, political focus to build uh, a state based on the observance of religious law or Sharia. And um, they considered that the uh, Islamic Caliphate that was put down by uh, Ataturk in uh, Turkey in 1924 had to be rebuilt, if not uh, as a caliphate, at least in its mode of governance. 
that uh, man-made laws uh, were uh, never satisfactory and that sovereignty did not belong to the people, but it belonged to God Almighty alone. This movement that uh, had a rather strong following in the 1930s and early 1940s in Egypt and uh, Syria and a number of other countries of the region was destroyed by uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser in 1954, went under during the Nasser period, and then re-emerged uh, in the uh, 1970s and 1980s, particularly in countries like Egypt, where on the one hand you had the military rule that dealt with issues of foreign policy, of uh, oil revenues, of security, of uh, Israel. And then there was another society, there was another group that dealt with uh, social problems, with um, education, with um, um, uh, children's uh, health and everything. That, of course, with religion and mosques, that was controlled by the Muslim brothers. They were not allowed to deal with the key political issues, but they were dealing with social issues that the military could not care for, could not uh, care about. And the, 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 the welfare state that Nasser and the socialist rulers had tried to, to build proved corrupt, inefficient, and therefore the Muslim brothers were used by the military to keep some level of social peace. Therefore, uh, the military regime, particularly under Sadat and under Mubarak, allowed for the brothers to have a rather wide array of uh, associations, of movements, of uh, benevolent societies that helped spread the language, the social uh, language of political Islam around. And when uh, the cracks appeared in the political system up after the upheavals took place and when the young people, if you wish, were the sort of the, the yeast of this movement, then the ones who could deliver afterwards and who could uh, hijack the movement were the brothers because they were so widespread socially before that. Also, what happened was that at the time uh, many in the West, in particular in America, during uh, President Obama's uh, tenure, were worried by the future of the, uh, of the upheavals. Many, as I mentioned earlier on, were pleased that these authoritarian rules were going away and uh, President uh, Obama himself, during the 18 days of the Tahrir Square uh, revolution in Egypt from uh, the 25th of uh, January to the 11th of February 2011, said that Mubarak had to go. Now, 
getting rid of an authoritarian uh, ruler is one thing, but then you have to think ahead. And soon enough it became clear that the young revolutionaries were unable to, to build a political system that would replace it. And therefore, the Muslim brothers looked like a rather good candidate. They looked like a rather good candidate because they had sponsors in the region, state sponsors who could deliver. One of them was the state of Qatar that uh, had favored the Muslim brothers already for a long time because it saw in them an ally to challenge the power of Saudi Arabia in the region. And another very significant uh, ally of the Muslim brothers was Turkey, whose ruling party, the AKP, was an offspring of the Muslim brothers in one of its uh, ideological branches. Therefore, you had a strong Qatari-Turkish uh, connection that boosted the brothers. At the time, Turkey, which is now uh, being bad-mouthed, uh, was praised because it sort of embodied, uh, uh, if I may say so, and quote from Max Weber, uh, Muslim ethic in the spirit of capitalism, if you want. And uh, Erdogan was, was very well perceived. And also, uh, one of the most important media that uh, made the, the upheavals public was the Qatari channel Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera at first would back the upheavals like crazy. They, they had a 24 hour uh, uh, a day and seven days a week coverage of the uh, upheaval on Tahrir Square and uh, Every, uh, uh, every, every Arab family uh, could uh, believe that they were part and parcel of what was happening on this big happening in Tahrir Square during the, uh, the 18 days of uh, January and February 2011. But, but little by little, uh, Al Jazeera would introduce the Muslim brothers as the true inheritors of the revolutionary movements and of the upheaval. And um, then in Tunisia, when you had the first uh, elections in October 2011, after uh, Ben Ali, uh, the former uh, dictator, was ousted in January, the local branch of the Muslim Brothers and Nahda won the elections. But Tunisia being a country that is extremely dependent on Europe, where you have a very strong bicultural middle class, and uh, it's also a country where one-tenth of the population lives abroad, mostly in France, with uh, many binationals. Uh, the, um, the Nahda party, the, the local branch of the Muslim Brothers, had uh, very early on adopted an extremely moderate line, thinking that if they wanted to break too violently and make no compromise with secularists, then that would lead 
to civil war and that they would lose. And they kept their mind on what had happened in Algeria, in neighboring Algeria in the 1990s for that matter. In Libya, the issue was that the country was um, too weak in terms of its social resources and its capacity to mobilize to oust Gaddafi by itself. And uh, as you may remember, there was at the time an entente cordiale between Britain and France to oust Gaddafi with Obama leading from behind, as he famously said at the time. And uh, the British and the French Air Force destroyed the, um, the Libyan army. And uh, as a result, Gaddafi was finally ousted and uh, lynched and killed. But what was delivered in terms of military operation was not uh, followed by uh, any significant political action. And therefore, uh, the uh, Libyan case went into havoc and turmoil. The country was disintegrated uh, into different tribal areas uh, that fought for the control of uh, oil and gas resources. And that led also to the fact that Libya has uh, become one of the main regions for human trafficking nowadays, which uh, is even uh, paying, pays even more than oil. And as you know, uh, Libya is the main country out of which uh, African uh, illegal immigration flows into Europe and Italy with the uh, political and electoral results that we uh, mentioned earlier on. Nevertheless, in spite of those splits within Libya, the Muslim Brothers also had made a headway in, in Tripoli. But they, because the country was not unified, they could not be as efficient as was the case in the two adjacent countries. In Egypt, the brothers, after a number of uh, parliamentary elections, managed to have one of their leaders, Mohamed Morsi, elected president in June 2012. And then you had a sort of first stage where a year and a half, a year, a year, from, a year from a year to a year and a half after the beginning of the upheavals, you had a new map of the region with the fact that you would have a Muslim brother-led region with Qatar and uh, Turkey as uh, the masterminds, Egypt as the main uh, country in terms of population, Tunisia as uh, the place where there were ideas, uh, Hamas also of the Muslim Brother persuasion was around in, in Palestine and so on and so forth. That led to a major fracture within the Sunni region. Because as I mentioned earlier on, Muslim Brother dominance was perceived as a major challenge for Saudi Arabia and for the, Arab, the United Arab Emirates. And from 2012 onwards, those countries helped the anti-brother forces 
which led to the coup in uh, uh, June and July 2013 that ousted Mohamed Morsi, the elected Muslim Brother President, and uh, led to uh, the comeback of the, arm, of the Egyptian army at the, in government with Marshal Sisi, who's now the ruler of Egypt. So on the one hand, you had this fractured scene in the western part of uh, the Arab world that had uh, undergone upheavals that had led to uh, the uh, ousting of uh, former authoritarian rulers. But on the other part of the Muslim world, or the Arab world, on the most eastern part, as I mentioned, something else took place. That is to say that the sectarian dimension took over. And when uh, the slogan had it that the, the people want the downfall of the regime, there was no such thing as a people in Syria, in Yemen, or in Bahrain. There were Shias, there were Sunnis, there were Alawis, and uh, others, and there were Kurds, and there were Arabs, and they were not in a capacity to build up a people that was consistent enough to join ranks and oust the ruler. Bahrain was the first case in point because uh, right after the uh, upheaval in Cairo and the occupation of Tahrir Square, the Bahraini population, or a lot of it, occupied the central square in, uh, in Manama, the Pearls, Pearl Square, but the population there and the demonstrators were predominantly Shia because a significant majority, uh, between 60 and 70 percent of the Bahrain population is Shia, but the ruling family is Sunni. Therefore, the upheaval was read and perceived not only in the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, the Arabian Peninsula oil producing countries syndicate, if I may say so, but also in the West as a major threat to the global balance of power in the region. If Bahrain became, ousted its dynasty, if it became a country ruled by its Shia majority, it would be perceived as a stooge of Iran with an island that was located in between the main Saudi oil fields and the main Qatari gas fields. That would lead to a major problem for the export of uh, hydrocarbons from the Gulf to the rest of the world. And therefore, the West turned a blind eye to the abortion of the uh, insurgency in Bahrain at the hands of the Saudi army and the Qatari and uh, Emirati police. So that was <coughs> the first um, uh, sort of announcement of what would follow in the eastern part of the region. That is to say that the divide between Shias and Sudanese would be more important 
than the social and the political divide. The sectarian dimension would be prominent. Yemen was another country where you had on paper a divide between Zaydis, people living in the north of the country, uh, which are a subsect of the Shias and Sunnis in the southern part of the country towards the Indian Ocean. Even though the division between Sunnis and Zaydis was minimal, people would pray in the same mosques and it was at the time not relevant politically until a number of ultra-radical uh, activists from uh, the Sunni persuasion went into northern Yemen and started to convert Zaydis to Sunnism, explaining to the kids that their parents were infidels, that they had to convert them or kill them, and so on and so forth. And that led to such havoc that a number of those Zaydis, who until then did not really care from the other Shias of Iran, turned to the Iranians for help something that allowed Iran to uh, have a foothold on the southwestern end of the Arabian Peninsula, something which, of course, were, was perceived as a major threat by Saudi Arabia and by the Emirates. And then, from that on, the uh, democratic revolution against former president or dictator Ali Saleh in Yemen developed into a sectarian war that was taken hostage by the wider competition and the wider conflict between Iran on the one hand and Saudi Arabia and um, the Emirates on the other hand. Then Syria. In Syria, what was uh, at stake originally also was the ousting of Bashar al-Assad, was, who was perceived as a dictator and uh, someone who uh, ruled based on uh, the power of a minority, the Alawis, who probably makes between 10 to 15 percent of the population today. But from the onset, the uh, Syrian insurgency, though it was democratic in its essence, had to resist a very violent repression by uh, the forces of uh, President Bashar al-Assad. And in order to fight against this repression, they had to uh, turn to violence, they have to have weapons, they have to have access to uh, money to have the weapons, and this money and those weapons came mostly from Sunni sectarian groups, particularly from the Arabian Peninsula, which little by little would turn, would change the nature of the insurgency that had started as a democratic rebellion and that was hijacked in its turn by the Islamist factor. At first, as had been the case in the other countries like Egypt and uh, Tunisia, the Muslim brothers and uh, the Qataris who were backing them were the dominant force. But 
afterwards, and largely uh, due to the uh, influence of jihadi movements in Iraq from the Sunni region in Iraq, based in Mosul and in the Sunni Triangle in Iraq, who started to cross the border because they thought that there was a great opportunity for jihad in Syria. The movement in Syria, the insurgency in Syria, was hijacked by radical jihadists. And that led to a complete change in the dimension of the insurgency in the region. And so from 2013, 2014 onwards, what had started as democratic revolutions against authoritarian regimes and what was perceived as leading to the end of history and the inclusion of the Arab world into the global uh, democratization of the world had failed and uh, turned into a brutal sectarian battle and a uh, competition within Islam between moderate forces and radical jihadist and terrorist forces. So that led to regional and superpower intervention, which also is very telling about the state of the, of the world today. As I mentioned earlier, President Obama, until uh, when he was still in power, was sympathetic to this, what he perceived as a sort of moderate Muslim brother outcome of the revolutions. When he was replaced by President Trump, things changed completely. In 2013, as you may recall, there was a major missed opportunity for the West to intervene in the Syrian civil war. In August 2013, the uh, loyalist army of Bashar al-Assad used sarin gas to bomb the uh, insurgent outskirts of uh, Damascus, the Ghouta uh, uh, oasis, which probably caused something like 1,400 dead. President Obama, uh, Prime Minister Cameron at the time, and President Hollande of France had said that if ever chemical uh, weapons were used, that would be a red line, and uh, passing that red line would lead to retaliation. There was no retaliation for a number of reasons, mainly because presidents, uh, because in, in Britain people uh, had learned their lessons from the, the lies uh, and of Iraq and the WMD issue and uh, would not go. Uh, in, in America, President Obama at the time thought that there was something better to do than military intervention and he was interested in bringing Iran into the international consensus in order to solve the region's problem. 
and, 19, and 2013 was the starting of the process that would lead to the signing of what was now uh, destroyed by uh, President Trump, i.e. the JCPOA, JCPOA the uh, peace treaty with uh, Iran in order to stop the uh, uranium uh, enrichment, enrichment process. That happened at the time, and instead of, of uh, having a strike against Syria, the West agreed with the Russian proposal to uh, cooperate in order to destroy the Syrian stockpile of chemical weapons. That was the first step of Vladimir Putin. The first step that he made in the region to regain great power status. And uh, the very important thing to, I believe, to, to gorge as of now is that the West has been to a large extent incapable to uh, organize for a negotiated solution out of the Syrian and the Levant mayhem. On the ground, the West has used most of its military might to destroy the Islamic State. The Islamic State, which, was, which had gained steam from uh, 2012 onwards until the caliphate was proclaimed in Mosul by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi on the 29th of June 2014, on the first day of Ramadan of this year. And due to the fact that so many terrorist acts in Europe and in the West were organized from the, the Islamic States, stemmed from the, the Islamic States, then military retaliation was deemed necessary not only for foreign policy reasons but also for domestic policy uh, imperatives. And so the West focused on the destruction of the Islamic State. But in the meanwhile, Within this wider coalition against terrorism, Russia managed to have the possibility to send its troops permanently to a base, a military base in Syria, in the Hmaymin, in the coastal region, close to the Alawites, uh, in the heart of the Alawite area, with 30-plus bomber fighters that start, started to bomb all opposition, all armed opposition to Bashar al-Assad. They, to some extent, attacked Islamic State positions, but very little, and they mainly focused on the destruction of the insurgents that were helped or boosted by Turkey, by the United States, and by some Western countries which led to the fact that nowadays in, in Syria we have a destroyed Islamic State in terms of territory, but we also have 
an insurgency that is in shambles, which is now unable militarily to uh, challenge the power of uh, President Bashar al-Assad. Who are the spoilers in, in, uh, in Syria today? Well, definitely Russia is now in a capacity um, to see the future. But uh, Putin's hands, to a large extent, are tied because uh, Russia in the Middle East is, cannot play alone and is dealing, strangely enough, with a group of allies who are, if we may say so, strange bedfellows. On the one hand, Russia is relying on the help of Israel. Israel was perceived until uh, fairly recently as a strongly uh, anti-Russian and anti-Soviet country, a close ally of the United States, which it still is. Nevertheless, nowadays, uh, Israel is a very close supporter of Russia in the region and vice versa. Uh, one-fourth to one-fifth of Israel's population is made out of immigrants from Russia. Israel does not apply sanctions, U.S. and international sanctions, uh, against, against Russia. There is a very strong military cooperation between the two countries, and uh, Bibi Netanyahu visited Moscow uh, eight times in uh, 2017 and 2018. He was there on the 9th of May, the day after uh, Donald Trump uh, got out of the Uranium Iranian Treaty, and on the very day when uh, Israeli forces bombed Iranian positions in Syria. So there you have a very strong Russian-Israeli uh, relation in the region. On the other hand, Russia has another very important relation with Saudi Arabia, which may sound strange, but that is the case. Why? Among other things, because Russia and Saudi Arabia are the two main oil exporters of the world. And the reason why the oil prices stopped their um, uh, downfall um, over uh, the last years, and you know, remember that they went down to something like $25 a barrel in 2014, which was, of course, a catastrophe for the oil exporting country and the Petra Marrakis. The reason was that there was a deal uh, to uh, reduce production between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And uh, this, of course, was a welcome uh, uh, opportunity for both countries. And King uh, Salman of Saudi Arabia visited Russia for the first time in, uh, in great pomp in October 2017. So there you have a very strong uh, Saudi-Russian uh, connection. Then there is a third uh, bedfellow, also for Russia in the region, which is Turkey. 
Turkey uh, has been allowed to invade uh, northern Syria to send its troops to, uh, to the Afrin enclave and to other cities and to control the deconflicting zone in Idlib thanks to its co cooperation with Russia, particularly in a process called the, the Astana peace process that is looking for a, a military solution out of Syria. Sheila, maybe, maybe we can wrap up? We, 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 are, we are wrapping questions. up. Absolutely. And um, well then, Russia, uh, sorry, Turkey is now obsessed with the Kurdish issue. They fear that the Kurds, because they, had helped, they have helped the West so much to fight, to fight the Islamic State, want to build a state on their own. And therefore, they will do whatever they can to break those Kurdish hopes to build a state of their own. Fourth and last uh, bedfellow of the Russians, of course, Iran. Iran is the country which has boots on the ground in Syria, together with Shias from Pakistan, from Afghanistan, from Iraq, and so on and so forth. But Syria and Iran on the one hand and Russia on the other do not really have the same interest in Syria. Iran wants Bashar al-Assad to remain in power. Russia would like to have a negotiated solution because they are not interested in remaining in Syria as a military power forever. They still, and Putin in particular, have bitter memories of Afghanistan and they do not want this to take place again. Now, Russia is being pressured on the one hand by two of its allies, i.e. Israel and Saudi Arabia, who play together, to oust the Iranians from Syria. On the other hand, the Iranians and Bashar al-Assad want the Russians to help Bashar remain in power and, do not, and not to have a negotiated solution. So, we're still in an area of great turmoil in uh, in the Middle East, in the post-Islamic states, where uh, as of now, we, uh, we face a major zone of instability. This is of course enhanced or made worse rather by the fact that American policy is extremely difficult to read. On the one hand, to say the least, uh, this is an oxymoron, uh, on the one hand, President Trump uh, was um, adamant against Iran, destroyed uh, the uranium treaty, and wants Saudi Arabia and Israel to put maximum pressure on Iran so that, that we may have regime change in Iran. And by the same token, they want to pull back they don't want to have boots on the ground in, in the Middle East anymore, and they are not interested in the fate of the region, or even less so because America has become now, thanks to shale oil, a major oil producer and an oil exporter, and is not, does not consider that the Middle East is so central for, for America as it was in the past. So this is more or less where we are now. Uh, hence, uh, we were facing, you know, even though some people said that, you know, ousting and destroying the Islamic State was 
major step forward and definitely the level of violence and terrorism in Europe has decreased. Nevertheless, we're still at a crossroads and uh, the, um, to a large extent, the uncertainty in the Middle East today reflects what is changing in the global world system with a global governance which is now uh, in shambles, multilateralism as we just saw at the G7 summit which is not functioning and uh, therefore uh, looking at the Middle East is a way also to question the way the world system is now uh, functioning or dysfunctioning. Thank you so much for... Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Gilles. You gave us lots to worry about this evening. Um, maybe I will start the warm-up with a question, and then if I could ask members of the audience to raise their hand, identify themselves, and keep their questions brief. But let me just start you off with one question, and then I'll collect up maybe two or three others, and you can take them in batches, if that's all right. So just one question for me. You, you talk about the new fault line being between Sunnis and Shias, and it's created these very strange bedfellows. How stable are those new alliances? And what happens to the Palestinian-Israeli fault line in this new configuration of regional power? So that's one for me. I saw a gentleman here and one behind, and then I'll go to the back there, the gentleman in the orange. Um, and I'll take the lady in the very back row. I'll take those up as a batch. If you could give us your name, give us your question. Um, yeah, uh, Paul Barbara. Where, where, um, are, where are you? Human rights and truth. Oh, sorry. Is it okay? Go can ahead. you hear it? Okay. I did, yes. okay. Can um, number of points. Um, it appeared to start in 2011, the Syrian, uh, you know, but in, in, in reality, the uh, so-called Arab Spring, there's a guy called Roland Dumas, French, ex-French foreign minister, who was in London 2009. I'm asking if you, if you know about this. Um, and uh, and uh, he, in 2009, he said he was approached in London by high British officials who told him that Britain was going to overthrow Assad with the use of mercenaries. That, that's not a theory. That is, you can see him saying that on the internet. That's, that's one thing. Wesley Clark, 2001, he was told, in the, in, and he's also on video, saying that uh, America was going to overthrow seven governments in five years, and he named them. Iraq. Could you ask a question? Iraq. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put the question, but first I have to put the information on both Okay, on. but just briefly, okay. we've got lots Iraq, of people who want to ask. Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. Uh, so the plans were in place. Um, I'm sorry to see that you seem to agree with the United States and a lot of other mainstream media and main, main governments assessments that uh, the Sarin attack was actually by Assad. You seem to accept that. Um, I don't know why you accept that, because it doesn't make any sense. Um, okay, I'm going to have to ask you to stop there. Oh. Could, we ask, could we take <laughs> yeah. the next question, okay. please? Uh, one more, one more, <laughs> one more. What is happening? One more, just you've one had more. Your, you've had your um, time. Have you heard of the Yinon plan? 
That is what's happening. Look it up. Yenon plan. The okay. balkanization of all the Arab countries around Israel. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, the gentleman behind him, could you please ask a question? Uh, Anis Basse, uh, Professor Keppel, uh, you? you touched upon uh, the fact oh, that sorry, uh, sorry. Russia has uh, learned its lesson in Afghanistan. Would you not agree the current situation in the Middle East, catastrophic uh, situation in the uh, Middle East now, is a direct result of Americans removing Saddam because no one knew anything about ISIS or Al-Qaeda, and now they are all over North Africa everywhere. When America is going to learn the lesson not to uh, um, have military intervention all over the place and causing such uh, disasters, and uh, they should learn from their failures in Vietnam, everywhere. And now they are after Venezuela, uh, all these countries. Uh, you know, what are they? I mean, it's all very nice. Okay, you, you have okay. very comprehensively explained, uh, explained the situation in the, uh, from the inception of um, uh, uh, I think ISIS. the question is understood. Thank you very so, much. I think, could we turn to the gentleman you. in the back? The, the gentleman in the orange jumper and then the lady in the back row. Oh, yes, the orange gentleman has a question. Uh, Paul Munton. This is not the orange revolution, right? <laughs> <laughs> the orange T-shirt. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked you haven't mentioned France. There we have President Macron. <laughs> who I have or I haven't? Have not. Haven't. Have not. Uh, who well, intervened briefly. so excellently uh, in the rescue of the um, Prime Minister of Lebanon uh, with... Uh, um, Harry, yeah, when, uh, when Macron was in, uh, in, in Saudi Arabia, yes. ever ready troops, and he seems to have stopped a crisis in um, Lebanon. I mean, do you see France having a, a, a useful role in this? You mean this, this, this fall, in, in November? Yes, what? that's right. Okay, yes. I, I was there, so I can tell you. Okay. Oh, good. Okay, and then the, the lady in the back row, and then I'll let Gilles answer those, and then I'll take another batch. Hi, I was just wondering, ISIS is still present in Afghanistan. How do you see the conflict evolving there? I, I, I couldn't understand your question. Uh, ISIS still has a presence in Afghanistan. ISIS has a presence in Afghanistan, yeah. How do you see the conflict evolving there as a result? Okay, you've got lots, lots to cover. Well, this is the problem of the Middle East that, you know, it's difficult to keep <laughs> short because uh, you know that. <laughs> This is why some people go to other countries. <laughs> and um, okay, so we had uh, questions from different points of view and different walks of life. Uh, um, I will start with um, uh, Dame Minouche's uh, questions. Uh, to what extent are those different alliances uh, around those fault lines tabled, where they are not. Um, particularly, uh, the Sunni bloc is now deeply fractured, uh, which goes back to this Muslim brother thing, pro or anti-Muslim brothers, and uh, now the, the, the divide between Qatar on the one hand and Saudi Arabia and the Emirates on the other hand has lasted for a year. It started in June 2017. And uh, the reason was that Qatar was perceived by Saudi Arabia and uh, the Emirates not only as uh, backing the brothers, but the brothers are now very weak politically, so it's not a big stake. 
but that they were perceived as, as backing uh, Iran and as willing to um, sort of appease Iran. And, um, you know, when you go back to uh, 2001, at the time, uh, America wanted to punish Saudi Arabia because, you know, 15 out of the 19 uh, kamikaze were Saudis. And it was perceived that it was the Saudi establishment that had willy-nilly uh, produced those, those terrorists. Nowadays, uh, President Trump considers that Saudi Arabia is the the spearhead of what he wants to call the sort of uh, the, uh, the anti-terrorist coalition with which he aims at ISIS, at um, Hezbollah, and at uh, Al-Qaeda in Iran. And therefore, uh, this, uh, this fault line within uh, the, uh, the Gulf states, I believe, is extremely deep, is not going to, to stop. And uh, even though Qatar ha uh, has used uh, tremendously well, if I may say so, their, uh, uh, their capacity to, to deal with their foreign investments, their influence, their clouts everywhere and in the world. So, I mean, they, they, they're still around after, after a year of, of, uh, of blockade. Uh, but it's, uh, it's very clear to me that the, the Saudis and the, and, the, um, and the Emiratis do not want to let things go. And uh, we're now uh, talking about, well, we did not talk uh, soccer tonight, but uh, this is the, the big soccer champion championship. The next one is supposed to take place in Qatar in 2022, and the Qataris for some reason that not everybody agrees upon, have even managed to postpone the, the soccer uh, season in winter, as you know, which is also a big problem for uh, local uh, soccer clubs. And it's, it's now it, it, it looks less and less feasible that they will be able to have uh, the championship because, you know, they, they need to invest and they cannot, you cannot go to Qatar now. You have to you're not allowed to, to fly over Saudi Arabia. So you have to go through Iran, which uh, make, takes another 1,000 kilometers and a few hours of, of, of flight. So everything is, is made to, to choke the country. So I, I, I do not see any significant reconciliation within the Sunni bloc for the, for the, time, for the time being. As far as of the other bloc and then the I'm not sure that Iran and Russia are aligned. I, I was in, in Russia a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, and uh, the words I heard about, uh, about Iran were, were not uh, very, very friendly. I mean, the Russians are tired, sick and tired of Bashar al-Assad. They, they do, did not want him to fall because it would have been perceived as a slap in their face while they were uh, supporting him, but now they want him to find a solution. They want a political solution. And they consider that uh, Bashar and the Iranians are interested only in a military solution and that they will have to pay the price for it and this is going to be extremely dangerous. They don't want to be taken into this, uh, this mechanism. Uh, as far as Israel and Palestine, uh, 
the uh, Israelis now, the Israeli political establishment now considers that uh, there is no more Palestinian question, that they've been defeated, and uh, that they enjoy not only American support to the point that the embassy was moved from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, that within the so-called Muslim and Sunni camp, there is no pressure that, you know, Saudi Arabia is on their side against Iran and against the Palestinians. Uh, I am not sure that this is feasible on the, not even the long term, but the middle term. But uh, for the time being, this is not the main irritant. The main irritant is Shia Sunni and within the Sunni world. But this is going to, to rebound. There's no doubt about it. Now, about the, the gentleman who was uh, into conspiracy, well, you, this is, it's an issue of, you know, whether you believe in conspiracy theory or not. I don't. You do. But this is, uh, uh, on that I cannot say uh, much more. Um, now, uh, the gentleman that mentioned that the beginning of all that started with, uh, with the forced removal of Saddam Hussein from uh, Iraq. So, actually, uh, the... Uh, you know, when I mentioned the end of history theory and the like in the, in the, in the beginning of the, of the lecture, um, the, 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 the removal of Saddam Hussein was something that came out of this sort of uh, what at the time was called the neocon or neoconservative vision of the world. That is to say that you had to get rid of Saddam Hussein, put in its stead uh, a, a government in place that would be based on the Shia majority of Iraq. This Shia majority had nothing against the U.S. or nothing against, uh, against Israel, would replace Saudi Arabia, which was perceived at the time as the culprit, uh, willy-nilly culprit for 9-11, as the swing producer of oil in the region, and that would lead to a reconciled Middle East, you know. This was, the, this was the way they, they, they thought, and to a large extent, the neocons who had been educated in the east-west divide, not the Orient-Occident, but the east-west, communism, free world divide, thought that Baghdad was nothing but, you know, uh, uh, another Warsaw or another Prague, that they could deal with the Middle East as they had dealt with Eastern and Central Europe which I believe was, was, uh, was definitely the, the, big, the big mistake. And the fact that uh, to plead for my parish, as we say in French, the, uh, uh, that, you know, uh, decision makers were uh, mainly thinking in terms of their uh, Cold War or post-Cold War education, but they were not interested in understanding the peculiarities of the Middle East, right? Um, which is, of course, is a, is a plea for more Middle East programs in the <laughs> in, in university, and in a, something which is, of course, it goes to. Um, then, um, well, um, when uh, President Macron uh, went to open the uh, Louvre Museum in Abu Zabi uh, at the end of last year, he had asked me to to go with him uh, in the plenary. 
I was not the only one, of course, many others were with him. And, uh, but then uh, we discussed whether or not he should stop over on his way back in Riyadh. He had never met with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. There was a debate. Some said he should not go because uh, a little before the sort of Ritz-Carlton revolution had happened, a number of princes uh, and others were summoned to this big hotel in, in Riyadh, were jailed and uh, were asked to give a lot of money in order to come back, as you know. Uh, and this was the setting of the the, the regime change in Saudi Arabia from a sort of tribal uh, lateral, if I may say, say ruler, uh, uh, system, uh, ruling system, to an absolute monarchy, which is now, uh, which is what happened then. So this, of course, was frowned upon by a number of, uh, of people, and uh, he did not want to be perceived as being hostage of it, but others, including uh, yours truly, said that he should meet him because if he wanted to play a role in the region, he had to talk to everybody, all the more so as there was no America anymore. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, particularly as you, as the gentleman in the Orange Revolution T-shirt mentioned, uh, particularly uh, after uh, Saad Hariri, uh, then the Lebanese Prime Minister, was in Saudi Arabia and clearly could not leave Saudi Arabia, <laughs> right? Uh, and France, having had uh, long historical relations with Lebanon, could not remain indifferent, so he went, and it so happened that Prime Minister Hariri then left the country and went to Paris and went back to Lebanon. Um, that was an attempt uh, by President Macron uh, to play a role in the region and to try to compensate for this sort of American vacuum. You know, uh, until, uh, until recently, uh, the, the most important uh, country in the region was the Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean. It's not the case anymore. I mean, the America, it's not even being an honest or dishonest broker. It's not real a broker anymore. I mean, it has taken sides very clearly. And uh, therefore, uh, there was, there was um, probably a sort of a vacuum that uh, Macron thought um, Europe, and in that case, uh, as represented by him on this occasion, could uh, intervene. But as you have seen since then, the European consensus on the region is, is extremely weak. And uh, many European countries are, are clogged by this immigrant issue, which precludes anything else, right? Uh, the French system is a sort of uh, uh, top-down political system. We have a major uh, majority parliamentarian system. Hence, uh, when you have 51% uh, of the votes, you have 75% of the seats or whatever, uh, which allowed him to win the landslide victory against Marine Le Pen in terms of parliamentary elections. 
But had we had the same uh, electoral system as Italy or Germany, we would also have uh, two-fifths of the parliaments filled with extreme right voters, uh, members, MPs, right? So this, of course, uh, is not something that uh, allows for a very strong uh, French or European perspective. And unless we, we bring the European institutions together and, uh, and boost them, this is going to be a, a, a major challenge for us. A major challenge because, as I tried to mention earlier on, uh, the Middle East and North Africa are now to a large extent part and parcel of us and we are part of them, right? Um, and ISIS in Afghanistan. Oh yeah, ISIS in Afghanistan. Uh, this is uh, slightly beyond my area of expertise. I was in Afghanistan once in my life under the Taliban. Uh, not a great experience. <laughs> and uh, I... Um, they are, they are around. Uh, as you know, they have been able to, to plant uh, bombs in Kabul a number of times. I guess that they, they are there mainly under the aegis of the, of the local Taliban and that they, they have managed to, to have a merger with, uh, with the local uh, Islamist uh, movements. But I, there is not, not much more I, I would dare to say because I'm not the expert on this issue. I think we have time for one more quick round of questions if people are very succinct. So let me take one from the lady up here, one from the woman up here in the first row, and then I'll take the gentleman in the middle and the gentleman here. So, uh, sorry, the young lady, yes, just there in front of you, yes. And then the, um, the woman in the front row here. Hi, please um, give your name and quick question, please. Hi, I'm Zippy, and I think you already... I, I can't see you. She's up in the up front row, to up on the top yeah. row. Oh, no. Oh, no. oh sorry, Wait. sorry. Right. I think you already mentioned it a little bit, but in in an absence of the European influence in the Middle East, what's the situation in the Middle East going to be like? Because European al uh, alliance did play a major role in prolonging the civil war in Syria through their financial support to the rebel groups, but now that there is no united say on what's to happen in Syria, what, what do you think will happen? What, what kind of conclusion will we reach? Okay, and the woman in the front row here. Hi, I'm Sophia. Um, I was just wondering um, how far you think that colonization is to blame um, for the issues in the Middle East today? Mm. Okay, big questions. Uh, the gentleman here, yes. not a very literal map, really. Because <laughs> it has to be a landscape map and not a portrait map. So. It was not a conspiracy. It was for real. <laughs> it was not conspiracy theory, but it was a conspiracy that w was, was real, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, it was not only French. It was French, British, and, uh, yeah, okay. 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 Purpose. And the gentleman... 
Okay. Yeah, you, what, what do you have to say? Okay, I have an answer for that. Okay, and the gentleman here. Right. Uh, uh, I, if, if one sees the archives of Kissinger, this was planned 30, 35 years ago for dismemberment. I agree with my friend, you see, the idea of balkanization of Middle East. And my dear father, when I was a young man and when the Israel was created, he says, my friend, there is a cancer now, and it will spread far and wide, and it will not give us a peace. Thank you. Okay. Okay. So, very quickly, uh, let me start with the easiest question: Why, why did the, the French, the the the, the what, that's by order of importance, the Americans, the Brits, and the French, uh, all uh, pride uh, swallowed, uh, bomb Syria on the uh, 14th of uh, May? Um, after there was another attack on the Huta, uh, which led to something like 40 to 50 people dead. Now, you know, this, there was a big uh, question whether or not it was sarin gas or another gas, whether or not it was uh, implemented by the Russians or the Syrians, whether or not it was uh, something that was cooked by the opposition, and, and so on and so forth. There was a now, I am not going to, uh, to discuss that, but the reason why the West uh, used their ballistic missiles, largely to show that they were still around. That uh, they, uh, because as you know, it led to nothing in terms of damage. The Russians were warned in advance. Uh, a factory which was supposed to do something chemical was destroyed. Uh, nobody was hurt, and uh, the issue is to show that uh, Russia was not the only country that had military capacity capabilities in the region. As you know now, the, the name of the game for uh, the air force and air defense in the in the region in the world in the region is what is called the S-400 ballistic uh, ground-to-air missile system which is manufactured by Russia and supposed to be the best in the world. NATO planes cannot do anything against it, which is the first if it's true, but you never know in terms of the, you know, until it's tested massively, which does not happen. But this is the first time since the end of World War II when in a very, very important slot in terms of, of, air, of the air defense, Russia uh, has the lead. And the use of cruise missiles and, uh, and the use of uh, missiles uh, by uh, air missiles by, um, by the three Western countries was a means to show at the time when Russia clearly was calling the shots in Syria that the West was still around militarily. I do not think that it meant much more than that. It was a means to say that, you know, there would be no solution uh, if, it was not a if it were not negotiated. This was, the, uh, this was the means to say we're still around. Don't think that you can do something on your own. I mean, this is my reading of the phenomenon. Now, um, is colonization to blame? Well, colonization is always to blame, but it's not <laughs> enough. And a lot of uh, water has flown under uh, London Bridge uh, and uh, another, many other bridges also. 
since um, since colonization was over, and now the the empire strikes back, as they say. <laughs> so um, you know, I, I'm I'm not really um, I do not think that this sort of normative view of history in retrospect is very helpful to uh, to allow us to to decipher what is at stake today. We have to take that into uh, our understanding. Uh, colonization and resentment against colonization is an important phenomenon to mobilize a number of people. And like, for instance, when you talk about ISIS, what was one of the, uh, of the most uh, important uh, propaganda themes of ISIS? It was that they would blur the uh, colonial artificial frontier or border between Iraq and Syria, the so-called Sykes-Picot line, at the times when the Brits and the French uh, did things together. The Sykes-Picot agreement was uh, Sir Mark Sykes, well, not the best thing at times. Uh, Sir Mark Sykes was the foreign secretary and uh, Georges Picot was the French minister of foreign affairs. So they agreed on the partition of the Levant, uh, with, that was at the time of, this, of the signing of the secret agreement under Ottoman yoke. Uh, west of that line, it would be the French mandate of the League of Nations, and east of that line, the, uh, the British uh, mandate. And so uh, on the day when the caliphate was proclaimed, on the 29th of June 2014, when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was to, uh, uh, four, years, uh, four days later, would go to the mosque in Mosul and, uh, and make his first Friday sermon as a caliph, uh, a video was broadcasted when you had a, a, a guy on a bulldozer who was a Chilean from Palestinian uh, descent and a fighter of the Islamic State who bulldozed the, uh, the, the, the border post between Syria and uh, Iraq, saying that the caliphate was erasing the last remnants of the colonial borders uh, in the region. And this, of course, sort of uh, struck a chord uh, among a number of people who were not necessarily pro-ISIS, pro but, you know, who would use that as a as a proof of uh, you know, the might of ISIS and its capacity to, to fight against colonialism, of what remained of colonialism. But this is only part and parcel of, uh, of, the, big, of the big game. And I think that it would, it would be uh, far too simple to reduce everything to the legacy of colonialism as if nothing had happened in the meanwhile. Now, the first question was, uh, what is uh, Europe going to do in Syria? Well, particularly as I answered to the gentleman uh, below, um, the military strike in May is uh, a signal uh, to, to the Russians mainly that uh, nothing non-negotiated can lead to anything in Syria. Therefore, um, uh, I believe that, you know, clearly now Russia is the dominant force in Syria, but it's, uh, it's a giant with clay feet, you know. It, uh, 
It has those four allies which are uh, at odds with each other, uh, Israel uh, and Saudi Arabia, which are also in the U.S. camp, uh, Turkey, which is somewhere in between, and Iran, which is clearly against the West for the time being. So the issue is to, to weigh on Russia so that a negotiated solution is, is found, that, uh, that Bashar al-Assad uh, uh, leaves one day or another, and that's a sort of, uh, uh, if not a democratic, at least a sort of uh, uh, consensual political system is, is built in, uh, in Syria. But on the ground, uh, definitely uh, uh, Russia, uh, as of now, has the edge. It may not last forever, but uh, it has the edge. Okay. Well, it could have been like Libya, but nowadays there is no, not much more in terms of fighting capacity yeah. because, uh, you know, the insurgency is, uh, is, is down. The only, the, the only ones who could unleash the insurgents are the Turks because they are more or less under their control in Idlib. Okay. Sorry? I think, I, I think we're going to wrap up now. I, yes, think, uh, I think Gilles has introduced enough complexity into our understanding of the region. <laughs> Too much, maybe. Uh, arguably, I think it's more complex than it has ever been, and as always, the region spills over onto the rest of the world, and the world's problems spill over into the region. The only thing I can say definitively is that the world needs more experts on the Middle East. In this order was, this to was the aim of the game. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you've persuaded us of the importance of deep knowledge of the region and the importance of things like LSE ideas as places where those ideas can be debated. So thank you all for coming and join me in thanking Gilles Capella for his lecture.